What's up? What's up, guys? Welcome, welcome to the Emmy Show. I'm your host, Emmy, and today we're gonna start a new, a new, um, a new season, a new, a new project here. I'll be talking to y'all so I'll play FIFA while I read books. I'm just gonna get fucking right here. Let's get it. Today is November 1st, 2020. In two days, the world is gonna fucking change. So. Oh, fuck! I don't even know how how that's gonna how that's gonna play out. But I mean, we're about to have a presidential election that, and the country has never been more divided. I think, and whether Trump wins or Biden wins, people are not gonna be happy. There's 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 gonna be chaos. Biden wins, people are gonna say, you know, he stole the election, and people are gonna go nuts. But if Trump wins, you know, just people are gonna get so fucking pissed. But regardless, regardless of whatever happens, stimulus check is coming. I'm pretty sure they're just like I don't know for some reason they decided to leave it after the election. Um, I really don't know who's gonna win. If if Biden wins, the only good thing's gonna happen is that the party legalized marijuana, and I mean, like all the potheads are for sure gonna go vote for Biden. The thing, um, but you know, we're not gonna talk about that shit right here. So, like I like I was saying, I've been thinking about reading uh this book it. Over a thousand pages. So, um, like I tried before, I didn't get very far. Now, obviously, I've seen the movies, both movies. I have never seen a TV show, but um, the movies are fucking great, and I'm sure the book will be better. So, I want to do this with y'all. Tell y'all, read read y'all the book. Uh, I'll probably read like, I don't know, from 10 to 20 pages. I'm going to read to, for, I'm going to read the whole first chapter in 16 pages. So, here we go. After the flood, the terror, which would not end for another 28 years. If it ever did it. If it... Well, fuck. Yeah, so... I'm not the best reader. So... Hopefully this helps. You know, like... In the future for me. Sorry, guys. Y'all can roast me or whatever. But... Alright, here we go. If it ever didn't... Begin. So far as I know or can tell. With the boat made from the sheet of newspaper floating down the gutter swollen with rain. 
Also, guys, I'm sorry. Pause, pause. If y'all had this book, go get it. Read it with me. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm going to begin again. Sorry. Never mind. I'm just going to keep going. The boat bobbed. Listed. Right, right itself again. Dived bravely through trenches whirlpools and continued on its way down Witcham Street toward the traffic light which marked the intersection of Witcham and Jackson. The three vertical lenses on all sides of the traffic lights were dark this afternoon in the fall of 1957 and the houses were all dark too. There had been steady rain for weeks now and two days ago the winds had come as well. Most sections of Derry had lost their power then, and it was not back on yet. A small boy in a yellow slicker and red galoshes ran cheerfully along beside the newspaper boat. The rain had not stopped, but it was finally slackening. It tapped on the yellow hood of the boy's slicker, sounding to his ears like rain on, shed a, on a shed roof. A comfortable, almost cozy sound. The boy in the yellow slicker was George Dembro. He was six. His brother, William, known to most as the kid at their elementary school, and even to teachers who would never have used the nickname to his face as Stuttering Bill. He was at home, hacking out the last of a nasty cause of influenza. In that autumn of 1957, Eight months before the real horror began and 28 years before the final showdown, Stuttering Bill was 10 years old. Bill had made the boat beside which George now ran. He had made it sitting up in bed, his back propped against a pile of pillows. While their mother played Fur Ellis on the piano in the parlor, and rain swept restlessly against his bedroom window about three quarters of the way down the block as one headed toward the intersection at, and the dead traffic light. Witcham Street was blocked to motor traffic by smudge spots and four orange saw horses Stenciled across each of the horses was their department of public works. Beyond them, the rain had spilled out of the gutters, clogged with branch and rocks and big stinky, sticky piles of autumn leaves. The water had first pried finger holes in the paving and then snatched whole greedy handfuls. All of this by the third day of the rains. By noon of the fourth day, Big chunks of the street surface were boating through the intersection of Jackson and Witcham like miniature white water rafts. By the end, many people in there had begun to make nervous jokes about arcs. The public public works department had managed to keep Jackson Street open, but Witcham was impassable from the sawhorses all the way to the center of town. But everyone agreed. The worst was over. The Candace Keegan stream had creased just below its banks in the barrens and bare 
inches below the concrete size of the canal which channeled it tightly as it passed through downtown. Right now, a gang of men, Zach Dembro, George's and, and Bill's father, among them, were removing the sandbags they had thrown up the day before with such panicky haste. Yesterday, overflow and expensive flood damage seemed almost inevitable. God knew it, it had happened before. The flooding in 1931 had been a disaster, which had cost millions of dollars and almost two dozen lives. That was a long time ago, but there were still enough people around who remember, remember it to scare the rest. One of the flood victims had been found 25 miles east in Bucksport. The fish had eaten its unfortunate gentleman's eyes. Three of his fingers, his penis, and most of his left foot clutched at what remained of his hands had been a Ford steering wheel. Okay. Now, now, though the river was receding, and when the new Banger Hydro Dam went in upstream, the river would cease to be a threat. Or so said Sag Dembro, who worked for the Banger Hydroelectric. As for the rest, well, future floods could take care of themselves. The thing was to get through this one, to get the power back on, to get the power back on, and then to forget it. In Derry, such forgetting of tragedy and disaster was almost an art, as Bill Dembro would come to discover in the course of time. George paused just beyond the sawhorses and at the edge of the deep ravine that had been cut through the, to the tar surface of Witcham Street. The ravine ran almost exact, almost exact diagonal. It ended on the far side of the street, roughly 40 feet farther down the hill from where he now stood. On the right, he laughed aloud, the sound of solitary, 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 so fucking stupid, I'm sorry, the sound of solitary. Childish glee, a bright runner in the gray afternoon, as a vagary of, of the Flowing water took his paper boat into a scale model. Rapids which had been formed by the break in the tar. The urgent water had cut a channel which ran along the diagonal, and so his boat traveled from one side of Witcham Street to the other, the current carrying it so fast that George had sprint to keep up with it. Water sprayed out from beneath his galishes in muddy sheets. Their buckles made a jolly jiggling, jingling as George Denbro ran toward his strange death. And the feeling which filled him at that moment was clear and simple. Love for his brother Bill. Love and a touch of regret that Bill couldn't be here to see this as part of it. To see this and be a part of it, of course. He would try to describe it to Bill when he got home, but he knew he wouldn't be able to make it, to make Bill see it. To Bill, yeah, the way Bill would have been able to make him see it if their positions had been reversed. 
Bill was a good was good at reading and writing, but even at his age, George was wise enough to know that wasn't the only reason why Bill got all A's in his report cards or why his teachers liked his composition so well. Telling was only part of it. Bill was good at seeing. The boat nearly whistled along the diagonal channel, just a page torn from the classified section of the dairy news. But now George imagined it as a PT boat in a war movie, like the one he sometimes saw down dairy theater with Bill at Saturday matinees. He wore picture with John Wayne fighting the Japs. The bro of the news paper boat threw sprays of water to either side as it rushed along and then it reached the gutter on the left side of Witcher Street. A fresh streamlet rush over the break in the tar at this point creating a fairly large whirlpool and it seemed to him that the boat must be a fairly large right? Must be swamped and capsized. It learned almightily. It learned alarmingly, and then, <laughs> and then George cheered as it uh, rigged itself up, turned, and went racing on down towards the intersection. George sprinted to catch up over his head. A grim gust. Of October wind rattled the streets, rattled the trees, now almost completely unburdened of the fried of colored leaves by the storm, which had been this year a reaper of the most ruthless sort. Okay. So, I know I fucking suck at reading. But it's all good. So, sitting up in bed, his cheeks still flush with feet. With, with, you know what? Sitting up in bed, his cheeks still flush with heat, but his fever, like the Kendas Keegan, finally receding. Bill had finished the boat, but when George reached for him, Bill held it out of reach. Now, give me the paraffin. What's that? Where is it? It's on the cellar shelf as you go downstairs, Bill said. In a box that said golf, golf, bring that to me. And a knife and a bowl and a pack of matches. George had gone obediently to get these things. He could hear his mother playing the piano. Not for Elise now, but something else he didn't like so well. Something that sounded dry and fuzzy. He could hear rain flicking steadily against the kitchen windows. These were comfortable sounds, but the thought of the cellar was not a bit comfortable. He did not like the cellar, and he did not like going down there, down the cellar stairs. Because he always imagined there was something down there in the dark. That was silly, of course. His father said so, and his mother said so, and even more important, Bill said so. But still, he did not even like opening the door to flick on the light because he always had the idea 
This was so ex exquisitely stupid. He didn't dare to tell anyone that while he was feeling for the light switch, some horrible clawed paw would settle lightly over his wrist and then jerk him down into the darkness as smell of dirt and wet and then rotten vegetables. Stupid. There was nothing with claws. All hairy and full of killing of their killing spite. Every now and then some someone went crazy and killed a lot of people. Sometimes Chet Huntley told about such things on the evening news. And of course there were commies. But there was no weirdo monster living down in the cellar. Still, this idea lingered. In those interminable moments while he was groping for the switch with his right hand, his left arm curled the door jam in a dead grip. The cellar smell seemed to intensify until it filled the world. Smells of dirt and wet and long gone vegetables would merge into one unmistakable, ineluctable smell. The smell of the monster. The apotheosis of all monsters. It was the smell of something for which he had no name. The smell of it. Crouched and lurking and ready to spring. A creature which would eat anything but which but which was especially hungry for boy meat. He had opened the door that morning and had cropped interminably for the switch, holding the jam in his usual dead grip. His eyes quenched shut. The tip of his tongue poked from the corner of his mouth like an agonizing root. Root? I don't know how to say that. Searching for water in the, in the place of drought. Funny? Sure. Yeah, betcha. Looking you, Georgie. Georgie's scared of the dark. What a baby. The sound of the piano came from what his father called the living room and what his mother called the parlor. It sounded like music from another world far away. The way talked and laughter on summer crowd beach must sound to an exhausted swimmer who swimmer who struggled with the undertow. His fingers found a switch. Ah! They snapped it, and nothing, no light. Oh, grips, the power. George snatched his arm back as, f as if from the basket filled with snakes. He stepped back from the open cellar door, his heart hurrying in his chest. The power was out, of course. He had forgotten the power was out. Jeezly, crow, what now? Go back and tell Bill he couldn't get the box of paraffin because the power was out and he was afraid that something might get him as he stood on the cellar stairs. Something that wasn't a commie or a mass murderer, but a creature much worse than either. Than either. That it, that it would simply slither part of its rotted self up between the stair rises and grab this ankle? That would go over big wouldn't it? Others might laugh at such a fancy, but Bill wouldn't laugh. Bill would be mad. Bill would say, Grow up, Georgie. Do you want this boat or not? As if this thought were his cue, Bill called from his bedroom. Did you die out there, G Georgie? 
No, I'm getting it, Bill. George called back at once. He rubbed at his arms, trying to make the guilty gooseflesh disappear and be smooth-skinned again. I just thought to get a drink of water. Pussy. I'm just kidding. Well, hurry up. So he walked down the four steps of the cellar shelf, his heart a warming, beating hammer in his throat, the hair of the nape of his neck standing at attention, his eyes hot, his hands cold, sure that at any moment the cellar door would swing shut on his own, closing off the white light falling through the kitchen windows, and then he would hear it. Something worse than all the commies and murderers in the world. Worse than the Japs. Worse than Attila and Hun. Attila, Attila the Hun. Attila, who's that? Worse than the somethings in the hundred horror movies. It. Growling deeply, deeply. He would hear the growl in, the, in those lunatic seconds before it pounced on him and unsipped his guts. The cellar smell was worse than ever today because of the flood. The house was high on Witcham Street, near the crest of the hill. They had escaped the worst of it, but there was still standing water down there that had seeped in through the old rock foundations. The smell was slow and unpleasant, making you want to take only the shallowest breaths. <laughs> Okay. George shifted through the junk of the shelf as fast as he could. Old cans of kiwi, shoe polish, and shoe polish racks, and broken kerosene lamp, two mostly empty bottles of Windex, and an old flat can of turtle wax. For some reason, this can struck him. This can struck him, and he spent nearly nearly. 30 seconds looking at the turtle on the lid with a kind of hypnotic wonder. Wonder. Then he tossed it back, and here it was at last, his square box with the world golf on it. George snatched it and ran up the stairs as fast as he could, suddenly aware that his shirt tail was out and su suddenly sure that his shirt tail would be his un undoing. The thing in the cellar would allow him to get almost all the way out and then it would grab the tail of his shirt and snatch them back in. He reached the kitchen and swept the door shut behind him. It banged gustily. He leaned back against it with his eyes closed. Sweat, sweat popped out of his arm and forehead. The box of paraffin gripped tightly in one hand. The piano had come to a stop and his mom's voice floated to him. Georgie, can't you slam that door a little harder next time? Maybe you could break some of the plates in the Welsh, in the Welsh dresser, dresser if you really tried. Sorry, Mom, he called back. Georgie, you waste. Bill said from his bedroom. He pitched his voice low so their mother would not hear. Okay, fuck you. George snickered a little. His fear was already gone. It has slipped away from him as easily as a nightmare slips away from a man who awakes, cold skin and gasping from its grip, who feels his body and stares at his surroundings to make sure that none of it ever happened 
and who then begins at once to forget it. Half it's gone by the time his feet hit the floor, three quarters of it by the time he emerges from the shower and begins to towel off. All of by all of it by the time he finishes breakfast. All gone. Until the next time when in the grip of the nightmare all feels all fears will be remembered. That turtle, George thought, going to the counter drawer where the matches were, were kept where the matches were kept. Where did where did I see a turtle like that before? But no one answered. But no answer came. I hear this missed the question. He got a pack of matches from the drawer, a knife from the rack, holding the sharp edges, sharp, holding the sharp edge, studiously away from his body, and his dad had, as his dad had taught him, and a small bowl from the Welsh dresser in the dining room. Then he went back into Bill's room. What, what a, what an, a hole you are, G- Georgie. Bill said amiably enough and push amiably enough and pushed back some of the sick stuff on the night table. An empty glass, a pitcher of water, Kleenex bo- Kleenex, books, a bottle of Bic's vapor rub and the smell of which Bill would associate all his life with thick fuck lick me chest and snotty noses. Bill Bilo Radio was there too, playing not chopping or batch but a little Richard tune. Very softly, however, so softly that little Richard was robbed of all his raw and elemental power. Their mother who has studied classical piano at Juilliard had it rock and roll. Hated rock and roll. She did not merely dislike it, she abominated it. I am not a hole, Georgie said, sitting on the edge of Bill's bed and putting the things he had gathered on the night table. Yes, you are, Bill said. Nothing but a great big brown a-hole. That's you. Georgie tried to imagine a kid who was nothing but a great big a-hole on legs and began to giggle. You're an a-hole bigger than Augusta, Bill said, beginning to giggle too. You're a hole is bigger than the whole state, George replied. This broke both boys up for nearly two minutes. There followed a whispered conversation of sort, which means very little to anyone save small boys. Accusation of who was the biggest a-hole, who had the biggest a-hole, which a-hole was the biggest, which a-hole was the brownest, and so on. Finally, Bill said one of the forbidden words. He accused George of being a big, brown, shitty a-hole, and they both got laughing hard. Bill's laughter turned into a coughing fit as it finally began to taper off. By then, Bill's face had gone plumly shade, but George regarded it with some alarm. The piano stopped again. They both looked at the direction of the parlor, listening for the piano bench to, bench, bench to scrape back. Listening for their mother's impatient footsteps, Bill buried his mouth in the crook of his elbow 
stiffening the last of the coughs. Pointing at the pitcher at the same time, George poured him a glass of water, which he drank off. The piano began once more, for Alice again. Stuttering Bill never forgot that piece, and even many years later, never failed to bring him good flesh to his arms and back. His heart would drop and he would remember. My mother was playing that day. Georgie died. You gonna cough anymore, Bill? No. Bill pulled the Kleenex from the box, made a rumbling sound in his chest, spat phlegm into the tissue, screwed it up, and tossed it into the wastebasket by his bed, which was filled with similar twists of tissue. Then he opened the box of paraffin and dropped the waxy cube of the piano into his palm. George watched them closely, but without speaking or questioning. Bill didn't like George talking to him while he, he did stuff, but George had learned that it, if he just kept his mouth shut, Bill would usually explain what he was doing. Bill used the knife to cut off a small piece of paraffin cube. He put a piece. He put the piece in the bowl, then struck a match and put it on top of the paraffin. The two boys watched the small yellow flame as the dying wind drove rain against the w- window in occasional spark spatters. Got to waterproof the boat, or it'll just get wet and sink. Bill said, when he was with George, his stutter was light. Sometimes he didn't stutter at all. In school, however, it could become so bad that talking became impossible for him. Communication ceased, and Bill's schoolmates would look somewhere else while Bill clutched the sides of his desk, his face growing almost as red as his hair. His eyes squeezed into slits as he tried to winch some words out of his stubborn throat. Sometimes, most times, the the word would come. Other times, it simply refused. He had been hit by a car when he was three and knocked into the side of a building. He had remained unconscious for seven hours. Mom said it was the accident which had caused the stutter. George sometimes got the feeling that his dad and Bill himself was not so sure. The piece of paraffin in the bowl was almost entirely melted. The match flame guttered lower, growing blue as it hugged and hugged the cardboard stick. And then it went out. Bill dipped his finger into the liquid, checked it. And jerked it out with a faint hiss. He smiled apologetically at George. Hot, he said. After a few seconds, he dipped his finger in again and began to smear the wax along the side of the boat, where it quickly dried to a milky haze. Can I do some? George asked. Okay, just don't get any on the blankets or mom will kill you. George dipped his finger into the paraffin, which was now very warm but no longer hot, and began to spread it along the other side of the boat. Don't put so much. Don't put on so much, you a-hole, Bill said. You want to sink it on its maiden cruise? I'm sorry. That's alright. Just go easy. George finished the other side, then held the boat in his hands. It felt little heavier, but not much. Too cool, he said. I'm gonna go out and sell it. Yeah, you do that, Bill said. He suddenly looked tired. Tired and still not very well. 
I wish you could come, George said. He really did. Bill sometimes got bossy after a while, but he always had the coolest ideas and he hardly ever hit. It's your boat, really. She, Bill said. You call boats she. She then. I wish you could come too. I wish I could come too, Bill said clumsily. Well, George shifted from on the floor to the other, the boat in his hands. You put on your rain stuff, Bill said, or you'll wind up with the f f like me. Probably catch it anyways from my g germs. Thanks, Bill. It's a neat boat. And he did something he hadn't done for a long time, something Bill never forgot. He leaned over and kissed his brother's cheek. You'll catch it for sure now, you a-hole, Bill said, but he seemed cheered up at the time. He smiled at George, put all his stuff back too, or mom, mom will have a bird. Sure. He gathered up the waterproofing equipment and crossed the room. The boat perched precariously on top of the paraffin box, which was sitting at a skew in the little bowl. G G Georgie? Church turned back to look at his brother. Be c careful. Sure. His brow creased a little. That was something your mom said, not your big brother. It was as strange. It was as strange as him giving Bill a kiss. Sure, I will. He went out. Bill never saw him again. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> oh my goodness, it's so sad. It's so sad. Okay. Almost done, guys. Almost done. With chapter one. Okay. Now here he was. Chasing his boat down the left side of Witcham Street. He was running fast, but the water was running faster and his boat was pulling ahead. He heard a deepening roar and saw that 50 yards farther down the hills, the hill, the water. What? Okay, wait. He heard a deepening roar and saw that 50 yards further down the hill, the water in the gutter was cascading into a storm drain that was still open. It was a long, dark semicircle cutting, no, cut into the curbing. And as George watched a stripped branch, its bark as dark and glistening as seal skin, shot into the storm drain small. He hung up there for a moment and then slipped down inside. There was that was where his boat was held headed. Oh shit. And Shinaloa, he yelled dismayed. He put on speed and for a moment he thought he would catch the boat. Then one of his feet slipped and he went sprawling. Skinning one knee and crying out in pain from his new pavement level perspective, he watched his boat swing around twice, momentarily caught in another whirlpool, and then disappeared. Shit, Ashinaloa! He yelled again, and he slammed his fist down on the pavement. That hurt too, and he began to cry a little. What a stupid way to lose the boat! For real, you fucking dumb fuck. Okay, so he pulled, he got up and walked over to the storm drain. He dropped to his knees and peered in. The water made a dang hollow sound as it fell into the darkness. 
It was a spooky sound. It reminded him of uh, the sound was jerked out of him as if on a string, and he recoiled. There were yellow eyes in there, the sort of eyes he had always imagined but never actually seen down in the basement. It's an, an animal, he thought incoherently. That's all it is. Some animal. Maybe a house cat that got stuck down in here. Still, he was ready to run. Would run in a second or two. And his mental switchboard had dealt had dealt with the shock those two shiny yellow eyes had given him. He felt the rough surface of the macadam macadam under his fingers. And the thin sheet of cold water flowing around him. He saw himself getting up and backing away. And that was when the voice, a perfectly reasonable and rather pleasant voice, spoke to him from inside the storm drain. Hi, Georgie, it said. George blinked and looked again. He could barely credit what he saw. It was like something from a made-up story or a movie where you know the animals will talk and dance. If he had been ten years older, he would not have believed what he was seeing. But he was not sixteen. He was six. There was a clown in the storm drain. The lighting there was far from good. But it was good enough so that George Stembro was sure of what he was seeing. It was a clown. Like in the circus or in or in or on TV. In fact, he looked like a cross between Bozo and Clarabelle, who talked by honking his, or was it her? George was never really sure of the gender horn. On Howdy Doody, Saturday mornings, Buffalo Bob was just about the only one who could understand Clarabelle, and that was always and that always cracked George up. The face of the clown in the storm dream was white. There were funny tufts, tufts of red hair on either side of his bald head. And there was a big clown smile painted over his mouth. Hey, Anabra, fuck that. I'm scared of clowns, guys. I don't know if y'all know that, but I'm fucking scared of clowns. So this is going to give me nightmares for sure. Okay, so if George had been inhabited in... If George had been inhabiting a later year, he would have surely thought of Ronald McDonald before Bozo or Clarabelle. The clown held a bunch of balloons, all colors, like George's ripe fruit in one hand. In the other hand, no, in the other, he held George's newspaper boat. Want your boat back? Georgie, the clown smiled. George smiled back. Couldn't help it. It was the kind of smile you just had to answer. I sure do, he said. The clown laughed. I sure do. That's good. That's very good. How about a balloon? Well, sure. He reached forward and then drew his hand reluctantly back 
I'm not supposed to take stuff from strangers. My dad said so. Very wise of your dad, the clown in the storm storm drain said, smiling. How he, how? George wondered. Could I have thought his eyes were yellow? They were a bright, dancing blue, the color of his mom's eyes, and Bill's. Very, very wise indeed. Therefore, I will introduce myself. I, Georgie, am Mr. Bob Gray, also known as Pennywise the Dancing Clown. Pennywise, meet George Dumbro. George, meet Pennywise. And now, we know each other. I'm not a stranger to you. And you're not a stranger to me. Correct. George giggled. I guess so. He reached forward again and drew his hand back again. How did you get down there? Storm just blew me away. Pennywise the dancing cloud said. It blew the whole circus away. Can you smell the circus, Georgie? George leaned forward. Suddenly, he could smell peanuts. Hot roasted peanuts. And vinegar. The white kind you put on your french fries. Through the hole in the cap. He could smell cotton candy and fried doughboys. And the faint but thunderous odor of wild animal shit. (laughs) He could smell the cheery aroma of midway sawdust. And yet. And yet, under all was the smell of flood and decomposing leaves, decomposing leaves, and the dark storm drain shadows. The smell was wet and rotten, the cellar smell. But the other smells were stronger. You bet I can smell it, he said. Want your boat, Georgie? Pennywise asked. I only repeat myself because... You really do not seem that eager. He held it up, smiling. He was wearing a baggy silk suit with a great big orange button. With great big orange buttons. A bright tie, electric blue, flopped down his front. And on his hands were big white gloves. Like the kind Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck always wore. Yes, sure, George said, looking to the storm drain. And a balloon. I've got red and green and yellow and blue. Do they float? Float? The clowns green winded. Oh yes, indeed they do. They float. And there's cotton candy. George reached. The clown seized his arm. And George saw the clown's face change. What he saw then was terrible enough to make his worst imagination of the thing in the cellar look like sweet dreams. What he saw destroyed his sanity in one cloying stroke. Hey, float. The thing in the drain crooned in a clotted, chuckling voice. It held George's arm in the thick and wormy grip. He pulled George toward the terrible darkness where the water rushed and roared and below 
and below I said before it's cargo from the storm debris toward the sea. George craned his neck away from, from the final blackness and began to scream into the rain. To scream mindlessly into the white autumn sky which covered above Derry on that day in the fall of 1957. His screams were sure, sure and piercing. And all up and down Witcham Street, people came to the windows or bolted out of their porches. They float, and growled. They float, Georgie, and when you're down here with me, you'll float too. Georgie's shoulders socked against the cement of the curb and Dave Gardner, who had stayed home from his job at the, sh at the shoe boat that day because of the flood saw only a small boy in a yellow rain slicker a small boy who was screaming and writhing in the gutter with muddy water suffering over his face and making him, making his screams sound bubbly everything down here floats that chuckling rotten voice whispered and suddenly there was a ripping noise in the flaring sheets of agony and george Dembro knew no more Dave Gardner was the first to get there, and although he arrived only 45 seconds after the first scream, George Dembro was already dead. Gardner grabbed him by the back of the slicker, pulled him into the street, and began to scream himself as George's body turned over in his hands. The left side of George's slicker was now bright red. Blood flowed into the storm drain from the tattered hole, tattered hole where he left where the left arm had been and a novel bone horribly horribly bright peeked through the torn cloth the boy sat started up stared up in the white sky and as dave stra staggered away towards the others already running pell mill down the street they began to fill up with rain Somewhere below in the storm drain that was already filled nearly to capacity with runoff, there could have been no one down there. The county sheriff would later exclaim to a dairy news reporter with the frustrated fury so great it was almost agony. Hercules himself would have been swept away in that driving current. George's newspaper boat shot, shot onward through the night chambers and long concrete hallways that roared and chimped with water. For a while, it ran neck and neck with a dead chicken, then f floated with its yellowy reptilian toes pointed at the dripping ceiling. Then at some junction east of town, the chicken was swept off to let while George's boat went on straight. An hour later, while George's mother was being sedated in the emergency room at the Terry Hospital, and while stuttering Bill sat stunned and white and silent in his bed, listening to the father sob, listening to his father sob hoarsely in the parlor where his mother had been playing for Ellis when George went out. The boat shot out through the concrete loophole like a bullet exceeding the muzzle of a gun and ran and speed down a loose way and into an, an unarmed stream when it joined the bo bowling 
swollen Penobscot River 20 minutes later. The first rifts of blue had begun to show in the sky overhead. The storm was over. The boat dipped and swayed and sometimes took on water, but it did not sink. The two brothers had waterproofed the well. I do not know where it finally fetched up, if it ever did. Perhaps it reached the sea and sailed there forever like a magic boat in the fairy tale. All I know is that it was still afloat and still running on the breast of the flood when it passed the incorporated town limits of Derry, Maine. And there it passes out of this tale forever. Well, okay. That was fucking okay, I guess. I mean, I finished chapter one. And honestly, I think I did better than what I expected. But, oh, fuck, man. I don't, I don't remember how far I got last time. I'm just trying to read this. I didn't get too far though. Oh, here it is. Fuck, where's it? I just saw my. I saw the fucking. I saw the receipt. I guess I was using it as my. Fuck. Well. Well, shit, guys. Thank y'all for listening. Stay tuned for part two. We out, motherfuckers. What's up? What's up, guys? Welcome. Welcome to the Emmy Show. I'm your host, Emmy. And today... We're gonna start a new, a new, um, a new season, a new, a new project here. I'll be talking to y'all while I play FIFA, while I read books. I'm just gonna get fucking right here. Let's get it. Woo. Today is November 1st, 2020. In two days, the world is gonna fucking change. So, oh, fuck, I don't even know how how that's gonna how that's gonna play out. But I mean, we're about to have a presidential election, that, and the country has never been more divided. I think, and. Whether Trump wins or Biden wins, people are not gonna be happy. There's, there's, there's gonna be chaos. If Biden wins, people are gonna say, you know, he stole the election, and people are gonna go nuts. But if Trump wins, you know, just people are gonna get so fucking pissed. But 
regardless regardless of whatever happens stimulus check is coming i'm pretty sure it's just like i don't know for some reason they decided to leave it after the election um i really don't know who's gonna win if if biden wins the only good thing's gonna happen is that the party legalized marijuana and i mean like all the potheads are for sure gonna go vote for Biden, I think. Um, but you know, we're not gonna talk about that shit right here. So, like I like I was saying, I've been thinking about reading uh, this book. It over a thousand pages. So, um, like I tried before, I didn't get very far. Now, obviously, I've seen the movies, both movies. I have never seen a TV show. But, um, the movies are fucking great. And I'm sure the book will be better. So, I want to do this with y'all. Tell y'all. Read, read y'all the book. Uh, I'll probably read like, I don't know, from 10 to 20 pages. I'm going to read to, for... I'm going to read the whole first chapter in 16 pages. So, here we go. After the flood, the terror, which would not end for another 28 years, if it ever did it. it, Well, fuck. Yeah, so, I'm not the best reader. So, hopefully this helps, you know, like, in the future for me. Sorry, guys. Y'all can roast me or whatever, but, alright, here we go. If it ever did end, begin. So far as I know or can tell, with the boat made from the sheet of newspaper floating down the gutter swollen with rain. Also, guys, I'm sorry. Pause, pause. If y'all had this book, go get it. Read it with me. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm going to begin again. Sorry. Never mind. I'm just going to keep going. The boat bobbed. Listed. Rid right itself again. Dived bravely through treacherous whirlpools and continued on its way down Witcham Street toward the traffic light which marked the intersection of Witcham and Jackson. The three vertical lenses on all sides of the traffic lights were dark this afternoon in the fall of 1957 and the houses were all dark too. There had been steady rain for weeks now, and two days ago, the winds had come as well. Most sections of Derry had lost their power then, and it was not back on yet. A small boy in a yellow slicker and red galoshes ran cheerfully along beside the newspaper boat. The rain had not stopped, but it was finally slackening. It tapped on the yellow hood of the boy's slicker, Sounding to his ears like rain on shed, on a shed roof, a comfortable, almost cozy sound. The boy in the yellow slicker was George Stembro. He was six. His brother William, known to most as the kid at their elementary school, and even to teachers, who would never have used the nickname to his face, as Stuttering Bill. He was at home, 
hacking out the last of a nasty cause of influenza. In that autumn of 1957, eight months before the real horror began and 28 years before the final showdown, Stuttering Bill was 10 years old. Bill had made the boat beside which George now ran. He had made it sitting up in bed, his back propped against a pile of pillows. While their mother played Fur Ellis on the piano in the parlor and rain swept restlessly against his bedroom window about three quarters of the way down the block as one headed toward the intersection and the dead traffic light. Witcham Street was blocked to motor traffic by smudge spots and four orange sawhorses Stenciled across each of the horses was their department of public works. Beyond them, the rain had spilled out of the gutters, clogged with branch and rocks and big stinky, sticky piles of autumn leaves. The water had first pried finger holes in the paving and then snatched whole greedy handfuls. All of this by the third day of the rains. By noon of the fourth day, Big chunks of the street surface were boating through the intersection of Jackson and Witcham like miniature white water rafts. By the end, many people in Derry had begun to make nervous jokes about arcs. The public public works department had managed to keep Jackson Street open, but Witcham was impassable from the sawhorses all the way to the center of town. But everyone agreed. The worst was over. The Candace Keegan stream had creased just below its banks in the barrens and bare inches below the concrete sides of the canal which channeled it tightly as it passed through downtown. Right now, a gang of men, Zach Dembro, George's and, and Bill's father among them, were removing the sandbags they had thrown up the day before with such panicky haste. Yesterday, overflow and expensive flood damage had seemed almost inevitable. God knew it, it had happened before. The flooding in 1931 had been a disaster, which had cost millions of dollars and almost two dozen lives. That was a long time ago, but there were still enough people around who remember, remember it to scare the rest. One of the flood victims had been found 25 miles east in Bucksport. The fish had eaten its unfortunate gentleman's eyes. Three of his fingers, his penis, and most of his left foot clutched at what remained of his hands had been a forged steering wheel. Okay. Now, now, though the river was receding, and when the new Bangor Hydro Dam went upstream, the river would cease to be a threat. Or so said Sack Dembro, who worked for the Banger Hydroelectric. As for the rest, well, future floods could take care of themselves. The thing was to get through this one. To get the power back on to get the power back on and then to forget it. 
and there he searched forgetting of tragedy and disaster was almost an art, as Bill Dembro would come to discover in the course of time. George paused just beyond the sawhorses and at the edge of the deep ravine that had been cut through the, to the tar surface of Witcham Street. The ravine ran almost exact, almost exact diagonal. It ended on the far side of the street, roughly 40 feet farther down the hill from where he now stood. On the right, he laughed aloud. The sound of solitary. So fucking stupid. I'm sorry. The sound of solitary. Childish glee, a bright runner in the gray afternoon, as a vagary of, of the flowing water took his paper boat into a scale model. Rapids which had been formed by the break in the tar. The urgent water had cut a channel which ran along the diagonal, and so his boat traveled from one side of Witcham Street to the other, the current carrying it so fast that George had sprint to keep up with it. Water sprayed out from beneath his galishes in muddy sheets. Their buckles made a jolly jiggling, jingling as George Denbro ran toward his strange death. And the feeling which filled him at that moment was clear and simple. Love for his brother Bill. Love and a touch of regret that Bill couldn't be here to see this as part of it. To see this and be a part of it. Of course, he would try to describe it to Bill when he got home. But he knew he wouldn't be able to make it. To make Bill see it. To Bill... Yeah, the way Bill would have been able to make him see it if their positions had been reversed. Bill was a good was good at reading and writing, but even at his age, George was wise enough to know that wasn't the only reason why Bill got all A's in his report cards, or why his teachers liked his composition so well. Telling was only part of it. Bill was good at seeing. The boat nearly whistled along the diagonal channel, just a page torn from the classified section section of the Dairy News. But now George imagined it as a PT boat in a war movie, like the one he sometimes saw down Dairy Theater with Bill at Saturday matinees. A war picture with John Wayne fighting the Japs. The bro of the news paper boat threw sprays of water to either side as it rushed along and then it reached the gutter on the left side of Witcher Street. A fresh streamlet rush over the break in the tar at this point creating a fairly large whirlpool and it seemed to him that the boat must be a fairly large right? must be swamped and capsized. It learned almightily it learned alarmingly and then <laughs> and then George cheered as it uh, rigged itself up, turned and went racing on down towards the intersection. George printed to catch up over his head a grim gust of October wind rattled the streets, 
rattle the trees, now almost completely unburdened of the fright of colored leaves by the storm, which had been this year a reaper of the most ruthless sort. Okay. So, I know I fucking suck at reading. But it's all good. So, sitting up in bed, his chick still flushed with feet, with, with, you know what? Sitting up in bed, his chick still flushed with heat, but his fever, like the Kenduskegan, finally receding. Bill had finished the boat, but when George reached for him, Bill held it out of reach. Now, give me the paraffin. What's that? Where is it? It's in the cellar shelf as you go downstairs. Bill said, in a box that said golf, golf, bring that to me, and a knife, and a bowl, and a pack of matches. George had gone obediently to get these things. He could hear his mother playing the piano, not for Elise now, but something else he didn't like so well, something that sounded dry and fuzzy. He could hear rain flicking steadily against the kitchen windows. These were comfortable sounds, but the thought of the cellar was not a bit comfortable. He did not like the cellar, and he did not like going down there, down the cellar stairs, because he always imagined there was something down there in the dark. That was silly, of course. His father said so, and his mother said so, and even more important, Bill said so. But still, he did not even like opening the door to flick on the light because he always had the idea this was so exquisitely stupid he didn't dare to tell anyone that while he was feeling for the light switch some horrible clawed paw would settle lightly over his wrist and then jerk him down into the darkness as the smell of dirt and wet and then rotten vegetables stupid there was nothing with claws, all hairy and full of killing, of their killing spite. Every now and then, some someone went crazy and killed a lot of people. Sometimes Chet Huntley told about such things on the evening news, and of course there were commies. But there was no weirdo monster living down in the cellar. Still, this idea lingered. In those interminable moments, while he was groping for the switch with his right hand, his left arm curled the door jam in a death grip. The cellar smell seemed to intensify until it filled the world. Smells of dirt and wet and long gone vegetables would merge into one unmistakable, ineluctable smell the smell of the monster. The apotheosis of all monsters it was the smell of something for which he had no name the smell of it crouched and lurking and ready to spring a creature which would eat anything but which but which was especially hungry for boy meat he had opened the door that morning and had cropped interminably for the switch 
holding the jam in his usual dead grip. His eyes squinched shut. The tip of his tongue poked from the corner of his mouth like an agonizing root. Rooted, I don't know how to say that. Searching for water in in a place of drought. Funny? Sure. Yeah, betcha. Looking you, Georgie. Georgie's scared of the dark. What a baby. The sound of the piano came from what his father called the living room. And what his mother called the parlor. It sounded like music from another world far away. The way talked and laughter on summer crowd by beach must sound to an exhausted swimmer who swimmer who struggled with the undertow. His fingers found a switch. Ah they snapped it. And nothing. No light. Oh grips. The power. George snatched his arm back as f- as if from the basket filled with snakes. He stepped back from the open cellar door, his heart hurrying in his chest. The power was out, of course. He had forgotten the power was out. Jeezly crown, what now? Go back and tell Bill he couldn't get the box of paraffin because the power was out and he was afraid that something might get him as he stood on the cellar stairs. Something that wasn't a commie or a mass murderer, but a creature much worse than either. Than either. That it that it would simply slither part of its rotted self up between the stair rises and grab this ankle? That would go over big, wouldn't it? Others might laugh at such a fancy, but Bill wouldn't laugh. Bill would be mad. Bill would say, Grow up, Georgie. Do you want this boat or not? As if this thought were his cue, Bill called from his bedroom. Did you die out there, Georgie? No, I'm getting it, Bill. George called back at once. He rubbed at his arms, trying to make the guilty goose goose flesh disappear and be smooth skin again. I just thought to get a drink of water. Pussy. I'm just kidding. Well, hurry up. So he walked down the four steps of the cellar shelf. His heart, a warming, beating hammer, and his throat, the hair of the nape of his neck, standing at attention. His eyes hot, his hands cold. Sure that at any moment the cellar door would swing shut on its own, closing off the white light falling through the kitchen windows. And then he would hear it. Something worse than all the commies and murderers in the world. Worse than the Japs. Worse than... Attila and Hun. Attila, Attila the Hun. Attila, who's that? Worse than the somethings in the hundred horror movies. It. Growling deeply, deeply. He would hear the growl in, the, in those lunatic seconds before it pounced on him and unsipped his guts. The cellar smell was worse than ever today because of the flood. The house was high on Witcham Street, near the crest of the hill. They had escaped the worst of it, but there was still standing water down there that had seeped in through the old rock foundations. The smell was slow and unpleasant, making you want to take only the shallowest breaths.
Okay. George sifted through the junk of the shelf as fast as he could. Old cans of kiwi, shoe polish, and shoe polish racks, and broken kerosene lamp, two mostly empty bottles of Windex, and an old flat can of turtle wax. For some reason, this can struck him. This can struck him. And he spent nearly, nearly 30 seconds looking at the turtle on the lid with a kind of hypnotic wonder. Wonder. Then he tossed it back, and here it was at last, a square box with the world golf on it. George snatched it and ran up the stairs as fast as he could. Suddenly aware that his shirt tail was out and said, Suddenly sure that his shirt toe would be his un- undoing. The thing in the cellar would allow him to get almost all the way out and then it would grab the tail of his shirt and snatch them back in. He reached the kitchen and swept the door shut behind him. It banged gustily. He leaned back against it with his eyes closed. Sweat. Sweat popped out of his arm and forehead. The box of paraffin gripped tightly in one hand. The piano had come to a stop, and his mom's voice floated to him. Georgie, can't you slam that door a little harder next time? Maybe you could break some of the plates in the Welsh dresser, dresser if you really tried. Sorry, Mom, he called back. Georgie, you waste. Bill said from his bedroom, he pitched his voice low so their mother would not hear. Okay, fuck it. George snickered a little. His fear was already gone. It had slipped away from him as easily as a nightmare slips away from a man who awakes, cold skin and gasping from its grip, who feels his body and stares at his surroundings to make sure that none of it ever happened, and who then begins to at once to forget it. Half it's gone by the time his feet hit the floor. Three quarters of it by the time he emerges from the shower and began to towel off. All of by all of it by the time he finishes breakfast. All gone. Until the next time when in the grip of the nightmare all feels all fears will be remembered. That turtle, George thought, going to the counter drawer where the matches were, were kept where the matches were kept. Where did where did I see a turtle like that before? But no one answered. But no answer came. And he dismissed the question. He got a pack of matches from the drawer, a knife from the rack, holding the sharp edges sharp holding the sharp edge studiously away from his body. And his dad had as his dad had taught him and a small bowl from the Welsh dresser in the dining room. Then he went back into Bill's room. What a, what an a-hole you are, Georgie, Bill said amiably enough and push, amiably enough, and pushed back some of the sick stuff on the night table. An empty glass, a pitcher of water, Kleenex, Kleenex books, a bottle of Bic's Vaporu, paper rub and the smell of which Bill would associate all his life with thick fuck lick me chest and snotty noses. Bill Bilo Radio was there too 
playing not chopping or batch but a little richer tune very softly however so softly that little richard was robbed of all his raw and elemental power their mother who has studied classical piano at juilliard had it rock and roll hated rock and roll she did not merely dislike it she abominated it i am not a hole georgie said sitting on the edge of bill's bed and putting the things he had gathered on the night table yes you are bill said nothing but a great big brown a-hole that's you georgie tried to imagine a kid who was nothing but a great big a-hole on legs and began to giggle you're an a-hole bigger than augusta bill said beginning to giggle too your a-hole is bigger than the whole state george replied this broke both boys up for nearly two minutes There followed a whispered conversation of sort, which means very little to anyone save small boys. Accusation of who was the biggest a-hole, who had the biggest a-hole, which a-hole was the biggest, which a-hole was the brownest, and so on. Finally, Bill said one of the forbidden words. He accused George of being a big, brown, shitty a-hole. And they both got laughing hard. Bill's laughter turned into a coughing fit as it finally began to taper off. By then, Bill's face had gone plumly shade, but George regarded it with some alarm. The piano stopped again. They both looked at the direction of the parlor, listening for the piano bench, bench to scrape back. Listening for their mother's impatient footsteps. Bill buried his mouth in the crook of his elbow, stifling the last of the coughs. Pointing at the pitcher at the same time, George poured him a glass of water, which he drank off. The piano began once more, for Alice again. Stuttering Bill never forgot that piece, and even many years later, it never failed to bring him good flesh to his arms and back. His heart would drop and he would remember. My mother was playing that day. Georgie died. You're gonna cough anymore, Bill? No. Bill pulled the Kleenex from the box, made a rumbling sound in his chest, spat phlegm into the tissue, screwed it up, and tossed it into the wastebasket by his bed, which was filled with similar twists of tissue. Then he opened the box of paraffin and dropped the waxy cube of the piano into his palm. George watched them closely, but without speaking or questioning. Bill didn't like George talking to him while he, he did stuff, but George had learned that it, if he just kept his mouth shut, Bill would usually explain what he was doing. Bill used a knife to cut off a small piece of paraffin cube. He put, a piece, he put the piece in the bowl, then struck a match and put it on top of the paraffin. The two boys watched the small yellow flame as the dying wind drove rain against the window in occasional spatters. Got to waterproof the boat or it'll just get wet and sink, Bill said. When he was with George, his stutter was light. Sometimes he didn't stutter at all. In school, however, 
It could become so bad that talking became impossible for him. Communication ceased, and Bill's schoolmates would look somewhere else while Bill clutched the sides of his desk, his face growing almost as red as his hair. His eyes squeezed into slits as he tried to winch some words out of his stubborn throat. Sometimes, most times, the world the word would come. Other times, it simply refused. He had been hit by a car when he was three and knocked into the side of a building. He had remained unconscious for seven hours. Mom said it was the accident which had caused the stutter. George sometimes got the feeling that his dad and Bill himself was not so sure. The piece of paraffin in the bowl was almost entirely melted. The match flame guttered lower. Growing blue was a hug and hugged the cardboard stick. And then it went out. Bill dipped his finger into the liquid, checked it, and jerked it out with a faint hiss. He smiled apolo- apo- apologetically at George. Hot, he said. After a few seconds, he dipped his finger in again and began to smear the wax along the side of the boat, where it quickly dried to a milky haze. Can I do some? George asked. Okay, just don't get any on the blankets or mom will kill you. George dipped his finger into the paraffin, which was now very warm but no longer hot, and began to spread it along the other side of the boat. Don't put so much. Don't put on so much, you a-hole, Bill said. You want to sink it on its maiden cruise? I'm sorry. That's alright. Just go easy. George finished the other side, then held the boat in his hands. It felt little heavier, but not much. Too cool, he said. I'm gonna go out and sell it. Yeah, you do that, Bill said. He suddenly looked tired. Tired and still not very well. I wish you could come, George said. He really did. Bill sometimes got bossy after a while, but he always had the coolest ideas and he hardly ever hit. It's your boat, really. She, Bill said. You call boats she. She then. I wish you could come too. I wish I could come too. Bill said clumsily. Well, George shifted from on the floor to the other, the boat in his hands. You put on your rain stuff, Bill said, or you'll wind up with the f- f- like me. Probably catch it anyways from my g- germs. Thanks, Bill. It's a neat boat. And he did something he hadn't done for a long time, something Bill never forgot. He leaned over and kissed his brother's cheek. You'll catch it for sure now, you a-hole, Bill said, but he seemed cheered up at the time. He smiled at George, put all his stuff back too, or mom mom will have a bird. Sure. He gathered up the waterproofing equipment and crossed the room. The boat perched precariously on top of the paraffin box, which was sitting at a skew in the little bowl. Georgie, George turned back to look at his brother. Be careful. Sure. His brow creased a little. That was something your mom said, not your big brother. It was as strange. It was as strange as him giving Bill a kiss. Sure, I will. He went out. Bill never saw him again. Dun dun dun.
Oh my goodness, it's so sad. It's so sad. Okay, but almost done, guys. Almost done. With chapter one. Okay. Now here he was, chasing his boat down the left side of Witcham Street. He was running fast, but the water was running faster and his boat was pulling ahead. He heard a deepening roar and saw that fifty yards farther down the hills the hill the water what? Okay wait. He heard a deepening roar and saw that fifty yards further down the hill the water in the gutter was cascading into a storm drain that was still open. It was a long dark semicircle cutting no cut into the curbing. And as George watched a stripped branch, its bark as dark and glistening as seal skin, shot into the storm drain's maw. He hung up there for a moment and then slipped down inside. There was that was where his boat was held, headed. Oh shit! And Shinaloa, he yelled, dismayed. He put on speed, and for a moment he thought he would catch the boat. Then one of his feet slipped and he went sprawling, skinning one knee and crying out in pain from his new pavement level perspective. He watched his boat swing around twice, momentarily caught in another whirlpool and then disappeared. Shit, Ashinaloa, he yelled again and he slammed his fist down on the pavement. That hurt too and he began to cry a little. What a stupid way to lose the boat. For real, you fucking dumb fuck. <sighs> okay, so he pulled, he got up and walked over to the stor storm drain. He dropped to his knees and peered in. The water made a dang hollow sound as it fell into the darkness. It was a spooky sound. It reminded him of, uh, the sound was jerked out of him as if on a string. And he recoiled. There were yellow eyes in there. The sort of eyes he had always imagined. But never actually seen down in the basement. It's an, an animal. He thought incoherently. That's all it is. Some animal. Maybe a house cat. That got stuck down in here. Still. He was ready to run. Would run in a second or two. And his mental switchboard hadn't dealt it had dealt with the shock those two shiny yellow eyes had given him. He felt the rough surface of the macadam, macadam under his fingers and the thin sheet of cold water flowing around him. He saw himself getting up and backing away and that was when the voice, a perfectly reasonable and rather pleasant voice, spoke to him from inside the storm drain. Hi, Georgie, it said. George blinked and looked again. He could barely credit what he saw. It was like something from a made-up story or a movie where you know the animals will talk and dance. If he had been 10 years older, he would not have believed what he was seeing. But he was not 16. He was 6. There was a clown in the storm drain. The lighting there was far from good, but it was good enough so that George Dembro was sure of what he was seeing. 
it was a clown. Like in the circus or in or in or on TV. In fact, he looked like a cross between Bozo and Claribel. Who talked by honking his or was it her? George was never really sure of the gender horn. On howdy duty Saturday mornings. Buffalo Bob was just about the only one who could understand Claribel. And that was always and that always cracked George up. The face of the clown in the storm drain was white. There were funny tufts, tufts of red hair on either side of his bald head. And there was a big clown smile painted over his mouth. Hell no, nah, bruh. Fuck that. I'm scared of clowns, guys. I don't know if y'all know that, but I'm fucking scared of clowns. So this is going to give me nightmares for sure. Okay, so if George had been inhabited in if George had been inhabiting a later year he would have surely thought of Ronald McDonald before Bozo or Clarabel. the clown held a bunch of balloons all colors like George's ripe fruit in one hand in the other hand no in the other he held George's newspaper boat Want your boat back, Georgie? The clown smiled. George smiled back. Couldn't help it. It was the kind of smile you just had to answer. I sure do, he said. The clown laughed. I sure do. That's good. That's very good. How about a balloon? Well, sure. He reached forward and then drew his hand reluctantly back. I'm not supposed to take stuff from strangers. My dad said so. Very wise of your dad, the clown in the storm storm drain said, smiling. How he, how? George wondered. Could I have thought his eyes were yellow? They were bright dancing blue the color of his mom's eyes and bills very very wise indeed therefore i will introduce myself i georgie and mr bob gray also known as pennywise the dancing clown pennywise me george dumbro george meet pennywise and now we know each other. I'm not a stranger to you. And you're not a stranger to me. Correct. George giggled. I guess so. He reached forward again and drew his hand back again. How did you get down there? Storm just blew me away. Pennywise the dancing cloud said. It blew the whole circus away. Can you smell the circus, Georgie? George leaned forward. Suddenly, he could smell peanuts. Hot, roasted peanuts. And vinegar. The white kind you put on your french fries through the hole in the cap. He could smell cotton candy and fried doughboys and the faint but 
thunderous odor of wild animal shit. <laughs> he could smell the cheery aroma of midway sawdust, and yet, and yet, under all was the smell of flood and decomposing leaves, decomposing leaves, and the dark storm-drained shadows. The smell was wet and rotten, the cellar smell. But the other smells were stronger. You bet I can smell it, he said. Want your boat, Georgie? Pennywise asked. I only repeat myself because you really do not seem that eager. He held it up, smiling. He was wearing a baggy silk suit with a great big orange button. With great big orange buttons. A bright tie, electric blue. Flopped down his front. And on his hands were big white gloves. Like the kind Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck always wore. Yes, sure, George said. Looking to the storm drain. And that balloon? I've got red and green and yellow and blue. Do they float? Float? The clowns green winded. Oh, yes, indeed they do. They float. And there's cotton candy. George reached. The clown seized his arm, and George saw the clown's face change. What he saw then was terrible enough to make his worst imagination of the thing in the cellar look like sweet dreams. What he saw destroyed his sanity in one clawing stroke. Hey, float. Thing in the drain crooned in a clotted, chuckling voice. It held George's arm in the thick and wormy grip. It pulled George toward the terrible darkness where the water rushed and roared and below and below as it before its cargo from the storm debris toward the sea. George craned his neck away from from the final blackness and began to scream into the rain. To scream mindlessly into the white autumn sky which covered above Derry on that day in the fall of 1957. His screams were sure, sure and piercing. And all up and down Witcham Street people came to the windows or bolted out of their porches. They float and growled. They float, Georgie. And when you're down here with me, You'll float too. George's shoulders socked against the cement of the curb, and Dave Gardner, who had stayed home from his job at the sh at the shoe boat that day because of the flood, saw only a small boy in a yellow rain slicker. A small boy who was screaming and writhing in the gutter with muddy water suffering over his face and making making his screams sound bubbly. Everything down here floats, that chuckling, rotten voice whispered. And suddenly, there was a ripping noise in the flaring sheets of agony, and George Denbro knew no more. Dave Gardner was the first to get there, and although he arrived only 45 seconds after the first scream, George Denbro was already dead. Gardner grabbed him by the back of the slicker, pulled him into the street, I began to scream myself as George's body turned over in his hands. The left side of George's liquor was now bright red, 
Blood flowed into the storm drain from the tattered hole, tattered hole where he left, where, where the left arm had been, a knob of bone, horribly, horribly bright, big through the torn cloth. The boys sat, started up, stared up in the white sky, and as Dave stra- staggered away. From Towards the others already running pell-mell down the street, they began to fill up with rain. Somewhere below in the storm drain that was already filled nearly to capacity with runoff, there could have been no one down there. The county sheriff would later exclaim to a dairy news reporter with the frustrated fury so great it was almost agony. Hercules himself would have been swept away in that driving current. George's newspaper boat shot onward through the night chambers and long concrete hallways that roared and chimped with water. For a while, it ran neck and neck with a dead chicken, then floated with its yellowy reptilian toes pointed at the dripping ceiling. Then at some junction east of town, the chicken was swept off to let while George's boat went on straight. An hour later, while George's mother was being sedated in the emergency room at the Terry Hospital, and while stuttering Bill sat stunned and white and silent in his bed, listening to the father sob, listening to his father sob hoarsely in the parlor where his mother had been playing for Ellis when George went out. The boat shot out through the concrete loophole like a bullet exceeding the muzzle of a gun and ran and speed down a loose way and into an unarmed stream. When he joined the bowling, swollen Penobscot River 20 minutes later, the first rifts of blue had begun to show in the sky overhead. The storm was over. The boat dipped and swayed and sometimes took on water, but it did not sink. The two brothers had waterproofed the well. I do not know where it finally fetched up, if it ever did. Perhaps it reached the sea and sailed there forever like a magic boat in a fairy tale. All I know is that it was still afloat and still running on the breast of the flood when it passed the incorporated town limits of Derry, Maine, and there it passes out of this tale forever. Whoa, okay. That was fucking okay, I guess. I mean, I finished chapter one, and honestly, I think I did better than what I expected. But, oh, fuck, man. I don't, I don't remember how far I got last time. I'm just trying to read this. I didn't get too far, though. Oh, here it is. Fuck, where's it? I just saw my... I saw the fucking...
I saw the receipt. I guess I was using it as my. Fuck. Well, well, shit, guys. Thank y'all for listening. Stay tuned for part two. We out, motherfuckers.